Hey, it's Ian Altman. My guest today is Allison Levine. Allison is a history-making adventurer who served as team captain of the first American Women's Everest Expedition. She's climbed the highest peak on each continent and skied to both the North and South Pole, something known as the Adventure Grand Slam. It's amazing because she's achieved all these remarkable things, but she's had three heart surgeries and she suffers from a disease which causes the arteries that feed her fingers and toes to collapse, but only in cold weather, which is a tremendous risk when it comes to frostbite. And she's the subject of the PBS documentary, Living Courageously, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. We're going to talk about the biggest misconceptions people have when it comes to leadership. We're going to talk about how taking a step backwards isn't necessarily the same thing as accepting defeat. And we'll talk about the mindset you can have when it comes to leadership to propel your business to new levels. You're going to learn a ton. She's absolutely an inspiration with Allison Levine. Allison Levine, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. You know what? I'm just, I feel so fortunate. You and I know each other, and it's just a special treat to be able to share you with the listeners. Can you share something surprising about you that they may not know? Um, something surprising about me is, I would say, in not very many people know this. Um, so yeah, it'll be surprising. In 2008, I tried to enlist in the United States Army, and I got turned down because I was a couple months too old. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I just I always wanted to serve my country, and I felt I should enlist in the Army at age 42 because I knew 42 was the age limit for the Army. So I thought if I ever want to serve in the Army, I have to do it now. So I tried to enlist in the Army, but I didn't realize you had to enlist before your 42nd birthday. And then I decided to try to skirt that rule and see if I could get around it. And in the process of trying to do that, I ended up with a job on the part-time faculty at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. How cool is that? How cool is that? Now, the idea of, of skirting the rules to get the job that you want is a topic we could cover, but instead I want to tap into your expertise when it comes to leadership and really start with what's the biggest misconception that people have when it comes to leading teams or leading organizations? So the biggest misconception, I think, is that leadership is for people that have achieved a certain amount of things in life, that have a certain title, or that have a certain amount of tenure. And people automatically think, well, I'm not a leader. I'm very junior. And and for people who truly, and I know most of your listeners are in formal leadership roles as senior executives within their organizations. But uh, what they need to realize is that the people that report to them, though even the most junior people in their company, need to be empowered to think and act like leaders from the day they walk in the door. And leadership has nothing to do with title or tenure or how many people report to you or how big of a budget you oversee. I love that insight because I think so often people have this notion of, well, but I'm not in a leadership role. 
Right. I ask people all the time when I'm delivering a keynote speech, I ask people, who in this room is in a leadership position? And usually a few hands go up and I'm like, you guys, every single hand in this room should be up. And that is, you know, something you have to instill in people, obviously, but that's something that the the true senior leadership with the titles, you know, the executive people in executive roles, they have to proactively empower those people to understand that they're in a leadership position. And, and leadership, as I mentioned, is not about title or tenure. It's about realizing that every single person on a team has a responsibility to help that team move toward a goal. And everybody also has the responsibility to be looking out for one another. You cannot leave that to one person or a handful of people with certain titles. So now you say that people, that the leaders need to empower other people. And I've seen a lot of times where leaders say, okay, I get that. I have to empower my team. I don't want to dwell too long on the, on the mistakes, but what are the pitfalls when people try to do that, but they don't do it the right way. So what are kind of the missteps that people make when they're bought into the notion of, hey, I should empower people, but you know they kind of phone it in. They don't quite get there all the way. So there's a couple of things I think that are really important in this process of empowering people to think and act like leaders. Number one, you have to Give people permission to fail because sometimes people don't want to step up to the plate because they're so worried that the execution won't go well. Right, that that things won't go as planned, and that they won't perform. You know, they they won't have the outcome. That they won't be able to get to the desired outcome. So, when you're going to ask big things of people, right? When you're going to set ridiculously high goals and stretch outside of your comfort zone, and when you're going to ask people to embrace the spirit of innovation, you're going to have to give them permission to fail. As long as they come back better from it the next time around, failure can be a really important process in leading to success. So that's one thing. The other thing is you have to get people to understand that they cannot stick to the plan. And sometimes you want to empower somebody to think and act like a leader and you say, okay, here's the plan, you know, carry it out. But what people have to understand is that when you're in rapidly changing environment, which is the business world these days, when you're in a rapidly changing environment, whatever plan you came up with last year, last month, last week, even that morning, your plan is outdated as soon as it's finished, right? So you have to understand that people need to be able to take action based on the situation at the time and not based on the plan. So I think a lot of times so much emphasis is put it put it is put into planning and planning of course is super important. You've got to have a plan. It helps keep you organized, keeps you on track, but just remember that you can't be hell bent on sticking to that plan no matter what. Right? You have to be much more focused on executing based on what is going on at the time. So it's empowering people to be familiar with the plan, but giving them permission to steer away from it when necessary. And you share such a great message in the keynotes that you deliver. I've had the good fortune of being in the audience multiple times having seen you speak. And it's a beautiful thing because I'm just as interested the second time or third time as I am the first time. So when, when we talk about this plan, can you share a little bit about your experience on this first expedition to Everest on how you had a plan and how maybe things changed? <laughs> yes. So 
obviously Mount Everest is a, a remote extreme environment where there are all kinds of factors that are going to affect your success and you have zero control over most of it. So the weather is probably the most obvious thing that's going to affect your plan that you cannot control. And you know, you can look up at the summit of Everest and it looks like it's pretty doable on a beautiful bluebird day, but within a matter of minutes, a storm can roll in, clouds can come in, the jet stream moves right over the summit, and then you have zero chance and you have to retreat. And you may have a plan to go for the summit on a certain day, as we did, as you know, the first American women's Everest expedition. And then weather comes in, thwarts the whole thing, and all of a sudden you're done. You know, you only have enough gear supplies and oxygen to go for it one time. And we happened to pick a day to go for the summit where a storm blew in unexpectedly early in the morning. We had to abandon our summit bid and turn back down and and head back down to base camp and give up on our dream to reach the summit. And look, it was a painful decision to turn around because we had a great sponsor. You know, the Ford Motor Company sponsored us, funded our trip. We had 450 media outlets following our climb. And then we didn't make it. So it was sort of this high profile failure, you know, with all this media coverage. But what you have to remember is that the goal of any climb, the goal of any expedition is to come back alive. And just like in the business world, you have to really know what your goal is. And sometimes it's not that obvious. Sometimes people might think, well, reaching the summit of the mountain is the goal. No, never the goal. The summit of a mountain is only the halfway point because you have to be able to get yourself back down. And people often ask, you know, was your team disappointed? Were you guys bummed out? Yeah, obviously we were bummed out that we didn't reach the summit, but everybody knew what the true goal was, which was come back alive. And that's how you keep everybody in, you know, sort of in step with the decision-making process and you get buy-in because everybody wanted to come back alive. Everybody wanted to come back with their fingers and toes. So we had to turn around and, you know, turn back from the summit. And just like in the business world, you have to think about how every move you make is going to affect everybody else around you and not just you. And one person's poor judgment can bring down an entire team, just like one person's poor judgment in the business world can bring down an entire organization. So that's the kind of stuff you have to think about is, yes, it's disappointing in the moment, but this is the right thing to do to walk away from the deal. And we're just going to come back again And, you know, next time around, we will have learned from this experience and we're going to be stronger out of the gates the next time. I want to put this into perspective for our audience. So how much of a climb is it from where you first get on to Everest to the top? It takes 10 days of hiking just to get yourself to Everest Base Camp. Everest Base Camp is over 17,000 feet. So just to give you some perspective, the highest mountain in the lower 48 is is 14 and change, right? That's Mount Whitney in California. Uh, So you're at 17,500 feet just at base camp after 10 days. Then from base camp, so base camp 17.5, the summit is just over 29,000 feet. It takes two months to climb that mountain, two months. So you spend two months on the mountain and you miss the summit by a couple hundred feet. Wow. Right? So just 
to ponder that for a second and see how that feels on top of, you know, all the media coverage and CNN's doing live updates from the mountain and you want to, you know, you're the first American women's Everest expedition and you want to send this great message about what a team of women can do when they lock arms and work together and you want to, you know, you're representing your country and you've got your flag on your sleeve and my God, you want to raise the American flag at the summit and then you don't get your shot. You couldn't take a picture of a spot that isn't the summit and go, yeah, yeah, this was it. <laughs> right? What's well, so funny, um, two, I think it was two years ago, this couple from India photoshopped their faces onto other people's summit photo and claimed that they made the summit. But somebody, the, the person whose actual photo it was recognized it and said, wait a minute, that's me. That's my down suit. That's <laughs> my, this is crazy. So that, <laughs> that's how they got busted. The, someone saw the post on Facebook and said, wait a minute, that's my photo. And, but they put their faces on these two people standing at the summit. It was hilarious. I can imagine that. I'm just, I'm just picturing people saying, well, yeah, just so you were 200 feet away. Just take a picture and say, yeah, yeah, this was it. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's less than the length of a football field. And, but what people also don't understand is that when you're at an elevation above about 26,000 feet, you're in a place called the death zone. And they call it the death zone because at 26,000 feet and above, human life can really no longer be sustained and your body's slowly starting to die. So when you're up that high, you're taking about five to 10 breaths for every step. So just a couple hundred feet would still take a few hours in case you have listeners that are thinking like, why didn't you just, you know, run and touch the top and run back down? You know, you could have done that, but you can't because a couple hundred feet would take several hours and we didn't have that much time left of a decent weather window with the clouds rolling in the way they were moving. So um, it's tough to make that decision, but as leaders, we have to understand that the, you know, the true goal, to, you know, you want to take care of your people, take care of your customers and, you know, keeping doing what's best for the people around you is always going to be the number one priority. And if on that first shot, theoretically, you might have been able to have some people survive getting to the summit or you might have all perished 200 feet from the summit because you tried. Right. Or we could have made it, but perished on the way down. Yeah. So most of the deaths that occur on Mount Everest actually occur after people have reached the summit wow. because they, they don't understand what the goal is. Their goal is to get to the summit. So they use everything in them. They use everything they've got in them to get themselves to the top. And they don't have enough left in their reserves, their energy reserves to get themselves back down. And so that's why most of the deaths actually occur shortly after people have reached the summit, completely out of gas. They collapse, you know, just below the summit and can't get down. Building the right sales talent in your organization can be a challenge. I mean, how do you know which candidates are going to do well and which ones aren't? And even which questions to ask in the interview process to figure it out? Well, you don't have to struggle with it anymore. The people at Peak Sales Recruiting have come up with a free sales interview guide. And if you need help finding the right candidates, these guys are total rock stars at finding those right candidates and helping them understand why they'd be better off working for you than somebody else. To get their free guide and to learn more, visit peaksalesrecruiting.com slash Ian. And I know that in your keynote, 
and really for our audience, if you ever have a chance to book Allison for your event, um, you will be so glad that you did. It's really, really a pleasure watching you. And you, you talk about how you share a great lesson on kind of how people go about approaching Everest and the lessons in business in terms of, you know, a lot of people have this mindset of, well, the way we succeed is we constantly plow forward and we're constantly moving forward and everything's about forward and forward. And it's almost like if you have to take a step backwards, it's a failure. It's defeat. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So probably the most surprising thing in my keynote from the, the feedback I get afterward, people come up and they say, Wait, I never, I never knew that. I never understood the way you actually climb this mountain. I just thought you, you climb up from one camp to the next camp to the next camp, and that's not how it works at all. Uh, as I mentioned, you're going to spend 10 days getting to base camp. Then once you get there, you have to spend a few days and nights there to get used to the altitude because it's over 17,000 feet. Then once you've been there for a few days, you climb up to camp one, which is the first camp above base camp, right? Yep. That's why it's camp one. And you spend a few nights at Camp One, uh, and then you actually come back down to base camp again. And you spend a few nights at base camp again, and then you climb to Camp One again. And then you climb up to the next camp, Camp Two, of course. Spend a night or two at Camp Two, and then you come all the way back down to base camp again. And then you do it again. You go to base camp. You go to Camp One again and spend the night. You go to Camp Two again, spend the night. The next day you climb up to Camp Three. It's almost twenty. 4,000 feet. 24,000 feet, you're up that high, and the next day you come back to base camp again. And the reason you have to keep coming back down to base camp is because you have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. It's this process called acclimatization. And if you didn't acclimatize and let your body get used to the altitude, you would die when you get up into the death zone. So you have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. But the problem is, is that as you're moving up slowly, your muscles are starting to deteriorate and your body is getting weaker as a result of the elevation um, and just the effects of altitude. So you come back down to base camp so you can eat, sleep, hydrate, and regain some strength. So when you come back down, that's when you can get physically stronger so that you're stronger the next time out of the gates when you're going back up to the higher camps. And yes, it can be very psychologically frustrating. It's, it's absolutely physically challenging because you're going up and down and up higher and back down. Psychologically, it's incredibly frustrating too because you are thinking, my gosh, I need to go up. I need to be going upward to get to the top of this mountain. But you spend so much time climbing in the backwards direction. And what you have to remember is that even though you're going backwards, you're still making progress. And for whatever reason, as you mentioned, we tend to think that progress has to happen in one particular direction, but that's not the case. Sometimes you do have to go backwards for a bit in order to eventually get to where you want to be. So don't ever look at that backtracking as losing ground. You have to look at it as an opportunity to regroup, regain some strength, so you're better out of the gates next time around. And um, one of my favorite phrases that I have is, uh, because I think it, it really resonates with people, backing up is not the same as backing down. Oh, right? great. Just because you're backing up, it doesn't, it's not defeat. It's not giving up. It's not walking away. 
you're just changing direction temporarily, and that is an okay thing. Uh, that's great. And my my question for you is this: is that as you go back down, and I've seen some of the pictures that you share, and it's just breathtaking to see. Do do you find that your approach to crossing certain chasms and to, to navigating certain areas on the mountain? Do you find that you learn something as you go back and forth over those same parts going from camp one or two back down to base camp each time? Well, yeah, I feel like each time, well, the other, each time I learned something a little different and something that's, that's fascinating about Mount Everest is this mountain, believe it or not, is, is in constant motion. There's things on the route that change, especially this one area called the Kumbu Icefall, which is one of the most dangerous frightening parts of the mountain. It's 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge moving ice chunks. And of course, when the sun comes up, everything starts to melt. These big, huge ice chunks start to shift around and it changes shape. So you can, you know, cross over one part of the route and think you've got it down. But when you come back down through it, it has changed shape completely. And, you know, look, same thing in the business world. At the rate things are changing and shifting, what what something looks like today might, you know, it might look completely different tomorrow. So being able to adapt to change and sort of embrace that change and understand that it's okay when things look different, um, you just sort of reroute, you know, and, and keep going. And so that's what I like about it. I like the unpredictable nature about it because it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me aware of everything going on, going on around me. And I think that's kind of exciting. You know, I wouldn't like it if it was always the same each time we went through, you know, back through the same trail. This is something that I think that for businesses, you know, the more experience people have when it comes to, let's say, sales situations, growing their business, marketing, what they start to learn is, gee, you know what? When I'm in this situation, I find that method A gives me better results than method B. And it doesn't mean that every situation is going to be identical to what you had in the past, but it's just you learn from it and say, ah, when I have a client who's concerned about this, I know that usually this approach works best. And even if it's not the same client, you just know, gee, in this similar condition, here's the way, here's the way I accomplish this. Now, I know that for our listeners right now, they're thinking – Man, so you got 200 feet away, and then you didn't get there. <laughs> wow. I mean, so, you know, would you ever go back? Did you ever go back? Yeah, so it was um, – pretty heart-wrenching to come back from that only because we did have so much media coverage. So then, of course, you have to come back and look at all the headlines about your big failure and, you know, being the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke and how does that feel, you know, crappy, <laughs> um, right? So I really internalized that failure and it made me think, oh, I don't want to try this again because... I didn't make it. And now I'm, you know, in the media and we, you know, we were celebrated before the climb and then we came back and everyone's just talking about our big failure. And, uh, you know, and it made me think, I don't want to do that again because I don't want to fail again. I'm not going through this humiliation again. But of course, failure would have been 
if someone had perished on died, a mountain. Died, right? But yeah. in my head, I just thought, okay, I didn't achieve my goal. That makes me a failure. And you just can't think that way. So this is one of those, like, do as I say, not as I do. Like, went into this depression, didn't want to go back to the mountains because, my God, if I fail again, then what's that going to do to my reputation? And I'm never going to get another sponsor. And nobody's ever going to invite me on another expedition. So I can't go do another big mountain because the risk, it's the risk of failing is too much. I wasn't thinking about the risk of something bad could happen to me. I was just the risk of failing. And that is a horrible mindset. Horrible. Yeah. It took, but it took me eight years until I got up enough guts to try it again. And long story short, I actually had a, a dear friend that I always said, if I ever go back to Mount Everest, I want to go with my friend Meg because she just seemed fearless and she was so gutsy and she wasn't afraid of anything. And she was a spectacular athlete and long story, but she ended up passing away from the flu very unexpectedly at age 37. So uh, this was eight years after my initial climb. I engraved her name in my ice axe to make sure that she was coming with me this time around. And I went back to that damn mountain in 2010, just a couple months after losing my friend Meg, and made it to the summit on my second attempt. What I realized when I got to the summit, because I thought, oh my God, once I stand on that summit, it's going to be amazing and I'm going to feel like I finally accomplished what I've been, you know, tossing and turning over for so many years and what I've, what's been haunting me, this big failure. And this is going to, you know, feel like vindication and success. And I got to that summit and I realized the summit just doesn't matter. Like once I got there, I was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is just not a big deal. What you have to remember is that Mount Everest is just a pile of rock and ice. It's really all it is. It's a pile of rock and ice. Standing on top of a pile of rock and ice doesn't change anybody. You know, it doesn't change you, doesn't change the world. It doesn't make anything better. What, what changes the world and what makes you better is thinking about how you're going to have impact based on your experiences on the mountain. So how are you going to take everything you learned on that mountain you just climbed? And when I'm talking to your listeners, you guys are all climbing mountains too. Maybe not literal ones. You know, some of you maybe be, might be climbing them literally, but you have your figurative mountains that you are climbing every damn day. Think about what you're going to do when you get off that mountain to be better on the next one. Think about all the stuff you learned that you're going to share with the people around you to help them become better climbers in whatever mountains they want to tackle. And remember that a lot of times your failure, you know, even though it feels disappointing because you didn't have the results that you wanted, your past experience is going to help other people be better down the road. So for example, Stredman, Hillary, and Tenzing Norgay, right? Most people have heard of them. First guys to ever summit Mount Everest. But there were dozens of people, dozens of climbers who tried and failed before those two made it to the summit. But those two, Stredman, Hillary, and Tenzing Norgay, they had the benefit of all the 411 from those previous climbers, all the information from those previous climbers. So if those other guys hadn't had the guts to try it first, even though they failed in their attempt to reach the summit, then maybe Stredman, Hillary, and Tenzig Norgay would never have made it because they wouldn't have had all the information from those guys. So look, you know, my point is when you're going to try really hard things, when you're going to set ridiculously high goals for yourself and your organization, when you're going to you know, really embrace a spirit of true innovation. 
You're going to have to give yourselves and your teams that freedom to fail and just realize you're going to come back from it better the next time around. You're going to climb again and you just look at it as a learning experience. You cannot let that failure define you. Failure is what happens to you at one moment in time. Once that moment's over, done, move on. You're good to go. You know, it's it's such brilliant insight. I remember with my family, we went to uh, we went to Peru and we visited Machu Picchu. And I remember reaching out to you before I went on the trip and said, all right, we're doing this. Should we hike it? Should we take the bus up there? What do you think? And this is just speaks to the experience. You said, well, a couple things. One, you should drink. I believe the way you described it was <laughs> drink so much water that you have to pee while you're drinking the water <laughs> so, that, <laughs> yeah. so that you're overly hydrated if that's even possible. And then – when you get off the plane in Cusco, which is the airport you're flying that's closest to Machu Picchu, you're probably going to be out of breath when you walk off the plane. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not going to happen. And our whole family walks to the end of the jetway. I mean, we're, we're not even near a mountain at this point. We're just in Cusco. We land there and we're all out of breath at the end. And, and our son's a soccer player. So this is a guy who runs miles and miles a day without even breaking a sweat and we're all out of breath. And I thought, wow, that's great insight. And had we not had that, it probably could have been a miserable trip, but because of your guidance, man, we had the time of our lives and we knew what we could do and what we couldn't do, which we wouldn't have known without someone else's experience, specifically yours. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Altitude. I mean, it can knock anybody right on their ass and you have to be prepared for it and understand what you're feeling is normal. Cause otherwise you might've said, Oh my gosh, I don't feel well. I don't think I should go. Yeah. You know, maybe I should just stay in our hotel room cause I'm feeling out of breath and it, I have a, I have a headache and I feel kind of sick to my stomach. And I don't think I can eat. And you might think, Oh boy, I've got, I've got something or I shouldn't go. I shouldn't do this. Um, I need to just rest for a few days. Oh yeah. And so our audience has perspective and we were about 22,000 feet below Everest. In fact, we were over 10,000 feet below the base camp at Everest at that point. And we were loopy walking 100 yards. Right, right. So, so, yep. for the, so for the people who have never done this, we're thinking, what's the big deal? Like I've done some hiking in Arizona and it's like no big deal, but it's all – Basically, you climb, you climb Camelback Mountain, you're still like barely above sea level. It's yeah, not, there's altitude, no altitude involved. Altitude is a game changer for sure, for sure. Yeah. So, Allison, you've got so much wisdom to share. What's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you online or learn more about what you're doing or if they're really lucky, being able to have you come speak at an event for them? Oh, gosh. Well, um, thanks for asking. I've got a website at alisonlevine.com, A-L-I-S-O-N-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. There's a bunch of videos on my website that you can um, go check out if you want to. There's you know a bit about my leadership philosophy, so you can learn more on my website. And also feel free to reach out to me on social media. I'm best at Twitter, uh, which is Levine underscore Allison. That's probably the, the fastest way to reach me. Excellent. So. And we will have all that in the show notes. It is always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks so much for sharing your amazing wisdom and your journey and lessons. And, uh, and everyone is fortunate to have been able to uh, listen to some of, your, uh, some of your gems here today. Oh, well, what an absolute pleasure to be your guest on your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can use and apply to your business right away. First, 
leadership is not for people with certain experience, tenure, or title. Rather, everyone can lead. If we've got people on our team who we want to empower to lead, we need to give them permission to fail and recognize that you can't necessarily be stuck on a specific plan because when conditions change, you need to adapt. And I love this notion that Allison talks about where backing up is not backing down. Remember, this show gets the direction from you, the listener. If there is a topic I should cover, if there's a guest you think I should have on the show, or just a question that you have, drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customer.